When I was a student at Grove City College, one of my favorite professors, Scott Powell, uh, taught us this little marketing maxim, lose your focus, lose your shirt. See, when companies lose focus on their mission and their core business, they waste valuable resources pursuing uh, new markets unrelated to their mission and core business and end up less effective in their mission and core business and sometimes lose their core business altogether. Imagine Mercedes-Benz releasing a new social media site called Mercedes Book and uh, in, in an attempt to steal market share from Facebook. Well, that would be a huge mistake Uh, Mercedes-Benz won't be able to catch Facebook if Twitter and Google Plus can't catch Facebook, and they're in that that particular business. Now, you don't need to work in marketing in order to understand the wisdom behind uh, lose your focus, lose your shirt. It works with school, marriage, parenting, hunting, uh, driving, fill in the blank. 1 Timothy was written primarily to a pastor. Uh, This text is particularly helpful to pastors, but you don't need to be a pastor to understand how these verses apply to your life, and that's what I hope to show you this morning. If, If I could summarize the big point here, it would be pastors are good servants of Christ Jesus when they are men of the word and godliness. Now, later in verse 12, Paul tells Pastor Timothy, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. The church was to imitate Timothy to a certain extent. So here's how I think that translates to you. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus if you are a person of the word and godliness. Now, it's easy for for companies to lose their focus. It's easy for us to lose our focus on Jesus and who he saved us to be, servants of him. Our sinful flesh fights against our focus on Jesus and mission to serve him. But the good news is Jesus gave his life to save us from sin and to break us from the power of sin so we can be people of the word and godliness and serve him really well. So let's get into these nine life principles. Number one, receive God's word through preaching so you can distinguish between false doctrine and sound doctrine. Note how Paul starts in verse six. If you put these things before the brothers, well, what things? Put what things before the brothers? It seems as if Paul is referring to everything in his letter. Put all of this truth together, but, but maybe more specifically, verses 1 through 5. It is clear in his letter that Paul is telling Timothy to teach sound doctrine to the local church. In this context, brothers refers to fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. So as Pastor Timothy was to teach, um, as a pastor, Timothy was to teach sound doctrine to the saints. Now, you're not a pastor, uh, but this applies to you. The words that Paul uses to Timothy, that he gave to Timothy, to put before the people are the words of apostolic authority, straight from Jesus himself. So through Timothy's teaching, the people fed on the word of Christ. 
through the preacher, and as they listen, Jesus trains his people in sound doctrine, sound biblical doctrine, so that they are fit to discriminate between good doctrine and bad doctrine. So as Timothy and every faithful pastor should preach the apostolic gospel of Christ, you must hear the apostolic gospel of Christ. And in doing so, Christ meets you in there. He meets you in the proclamation of his word, and he nourishes you, and he strengthens you, and he trains you how to think, how to feel, how to live. Love Jesus by receiving his word, and allow in that Jesus to love you by giving you his word, to love you through that. So the first life principle is receive God's Word through preaching, so you can distinguish between false doctrine and sound doctrine. Number two, aspire to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Again, verse six, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. If Timothy was going to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, he needed to do what pastors do, teach the word of Christ to God's people in the local church so the gospel transforms the people into the image of Christ. First, a pastor is a servant of Christ Jesus. We could go even further and say a pastor is a slave of Christ Jesus. And second, in order for a pastor to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, like Timothy, he must instruct his people in God's word for their growth and their godliness. If Timothy hadn't put uh, the, the faithful words of the truth in Paul's letter before the church, he would not have been a good servant because Jesus wants to feed his people through preaching. Timothy's goodness of service to Christ was connected to his faithfulness in teaching the word of Christ. So apply this to your life. Jesus is the greatest teacher. He's the greatest teacher, and he wants to broadcast his truth for the good of his people. Now, how is he doing that? Through biblical preaching, and I think it applies to you like this. You will desire and you will devour Christ-centered preaching in your church because you want to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. You should have one aspiration in this life, to be a good servant of Christ Jesus in whatever place he chooses to put you. Everything else is second to that. And in order to be a good servant, you must avail yourself of God's means of grace through which Christ trains you, strengthens you, nourishes you. If you avail yourself of God's grace through gospel preaching, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus because you will be following him. He'll be nourishing and strengthening you. Can you see how important the word is? The word is so important in our life. Take advantage of what Jesus gives you here at Jerusalem Church. Soak in the word. Soak in the word because you want to be all that you can be in Christ. The second life principle is aspire to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Number three, engage in nonstop training in the words of the faith and good doctrine. Verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. 
Note these uh, three things about this phrase. Number one, when you hear being trained in verse six, don't go to the gym. You have to stay home for this word. Think of a child being reared or being brought up in a certain way. The sense that, that Paul is using here is being reared, raised as a child in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. Number two, the words of the faith and of the good doctrine are the words of the Christian faith given through the apostles. Timothy, if you think about his early life, he had been trained in the Old Testament at home by his Jewish mother. His father was a Greek, so it wasn't much help there. His mom and grandma were converted under Paul's preaching and, and I think played a huge part, a profound part, in the faith formation in Timothy. So, and then, as Paul's protege, Timothy was nurtured in Christian doctrine, that apostolic gospel that was passed to him. Number three, being trained is present passive participle for you grammarians who I'm sure love that type of thing. For those who don't, which are most of you, Timothy, this is what that means, Timothy was being Uh, presently trained. It wasn't something from his childhood and then it stopped. It was ongoing training for him in the words of the faith and good doctrine. His training didn't stop. He didn't reach the end of it. This letter is evidence of Timothy's nonstop training as he was getting it and working through this. It was training him to be a good pastor. Jesus trains people through his word. How could a teacher teach without words? How could a teacher teach without propositions, statements of truth? Read the Gospels and you'll see and you'll watch how Jesus reared his disciples, how he trained them, how he tenderly cared for them through his teaching ministry. He revealed to them his identity and and constantly taught them what to believe, how to think, and and how to respond to him, how to respond to God. How does Jesus nurture his disciples now? He speaks to them through his word, the sacred text of Scripture, and his spirit then works in that to apply that to their lives. It's kind of hard when you read 1 Timothy to miss how important, how critical, how absolutely essential sound doctrine is. It's loaded. The book is loaded with it. It's a central theme because Jesus is the truth and he wants his people to know him. Folks, there, there are no shortcuts to godliness. There are none. You must train nonstop in God's word. You cannot let up. And the one nurturing you in the words of the faith and in good doctrine is God himself. God is nurturing you. Think of it this way. God delivered up his son to be slaughtered on a cross in order to make you godly through his word. The power is in his word. So the third life principle is to commune with Jesus Christ by engaging yourself in nonstop training in the words of the faith and good doctrine. Do it in church. Do it at home. Do it all the time. Do it everywhere. Train, 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 train. Number four, always follow the words of the faith and good doctrine. Excuse me. For Timothy, truth was more than cognitive. It was his guide his life coach. It took him where he needed to go. Like a little sheep trotting behind, Timothy followed the commands of his faithful and gentle shepherd Jesus. 
Timothy's trust of Jesus led to carefully follow the words of Jesus. When, when Paul says that Timothy had followed the words of the faith and of the good doctrine, he uses the perfect tense to show that Timothy had followed in the past and was continue, continuing to follow in the present. Timothy just kept on following, kept on following. In 1 Corinthians 4.17, Paul referred to Timothy as my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Later in 1 Corinthians 16.10, he said, Timothy is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Now imagine getting that kind of commendation from an apostle in front of all of those Christians in Corinth. Whoa, that is considerable. That would have been amazing. Timothy just kept following and Jesus kept strengthening him in the word, through the word. Now if one day you just up and decided, you know what? I'm not going to eat anymore. I'm going to stop. I'm tired of it. What, what would happen to you? Well, after a few missed meals, you're all right. Maybe after a week, you're kind of hurting. After two, three weeks, you're on the highway to the danger zone, 80s. Come on. And then if you miss like up to a month or you go even longer, all right, you're knocking on heaven's door. Come on, 80s. It's dangerous. Persistence is kind of important, wouldn't you say? It is meaningless to follow for a time and then not to finish. Persistence is everything. Persistence is everything. Jesus is persistent. He obeyed to the point of death on a Roman cross. Persistence, then, will come for you when you are in the word of Christ, when it is strengthening you, when it is compelling you to put one foot in front of the other, and he's ministering to you. He's there in the word So the fourth life principle is this, always follow the words of the faith and good doctrine. Five, avoid irreverent silly myths. Timothy absolutely needed to know what to believe, but you know, he he also needed to know what not to believe. Uh, Paul simply tells him, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. In other words, Timothy needed to steer clear of godless tall tales and superstitions. Now, older women, I hope this doesn't fit you, that, that you don't fit this stereotype. The Greek word for silly here is graodes, which derives from the word gras or old woman. And as one scholar put it, graodes describes something as characteristic of old women, especially framing it as silly and superstitious. Graodes is kind of like an old wives' tale, okay? I'm sorry, son, you can't have coffee tonight because it's going to stunt your growth. No, it's not. It's not going to stunt his growth. You just don't want them all amped up on caffeine because it makes your, your life maybe a little bit more busy in the evening. Now, I like, I like Disney, okay? But if you wish upon a shooting star, your wildest dreams are not going to come true. Okay? I hate to be the the bearer of bad news. If you spill the salt, it's okay. Just clean it up. You don't have to toss anything over your left shoulder. Now, that one is really interesting because I, I can't believe this is true, but it is. There's a widespread explanation for that. Maybe the the number one, and and I wonder if you know what it is. 
It's an old wives' tale, but it, what's explained is that Judas Iscariot spilled the salt at the Last Supper. I kid you not. And, and apparently, Leonardo da Vinci actually painted this into the Lord's Supper. You'll see Judas has knocked over a little uh, container of salt. Okay? That's absurd. That is absolutely absurd. Superstitions are absurd. And yet, some Christians are superstitious. Paul warns Timothy about that. He warns him. Back in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul mentioned false teachers devoting themselves to myths which distract from the stewardship from God that is by faith. Myths and superstitions are dangerous things, my friends. Dangerous things. To put it bluntly, they're lies that mislead and distract people from the truth of Christ. We'll see in the next point that irreverent silly myths are contrasted with training oneself for godliness. So understand, godless myths and superstitions distract people from the gospel and godliness. Now, don't misunderstand me, please. I think there is a place for Christians to enjoy good fiction as fiction. Do you understand what I'm saying? But we must always use discernment as we read or watch or whatever. Timothy was to be a man of the word, and if he was to be a man of the word, he needed to avoid irreverent, silly myths. Don't even waste your time with them, Timothy. And Paul mentioned two of those myths that we looked at last time in verse 3. As verses 1 and 5 show, it's not often that people in church just flat out and openly reject Jesus Christ. It's so much more subtle oftentimes. They, they start adding in myths. They start adding in superstitions. And they add that to Jesus, which is so dangerous because it kind of sounds right, but it's not right. It's very different. Uh, uh, many people actually, they do this with, with the holidays, with Christmas. They do this with Easter. In a sense, what you don't believe is as important as what you do believe. You may believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Yay, that's great. But if you also believe in the spiritual power of crystals or religious jewelry or trinkets, you're adding to the gospel and making it no gospel at all. I believe the adage is, in Christ alone. Jesus didn't mess around with anything irreverent, with anything silly. In the upper room, and Jesus is with his disciples, Jesus prayed this, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you. For you to be a faithful servant of Christ Jesus, you have to avoid these irreverent, and silly and meaningless myths that are attached to Christianity. Get rid of them. Get rid of them. There is no room. Are you drawn to myths? Are you superstitious? Do you quote things in Bible studies that aren't found in the Bible anywhere? It's just something you heard one time? Be very careful. Religious myths and superstitions do not help you commune with Jesus Christ, do not encourage your godliness. In fact, they lead you away from Jesus, so have nothing to do with them. Test what you say. Test what other people say according to Scripture. The apostolic 
testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the fifth life principle is this. Avoid irreverent, silly myths. And the best way to do that is the next point, number six. Train yourself for godliness with spirit-empowered, gospel-driven, and faith-fueled effort. Instead of devoting himself to myths and superstitions, Paul told Timothy, rather, train yourself for godliness. And here's here's where we need to head into the gym, okay? The word train in verse 7 is different from being trained in verse 6. The word here is gumnazo, gumnazo, and you can hear our English uh, term that's related there, gymnasium, gumnazo, gymnasium. Paul was likely a sports fan, hoorah. Paul, and uh, he used athletic illustrations in his writing, boxing, wrestling, running races, winning wreaths. Gumnazo refers literally to arduous physical exercise. Uh, I mean, hard, intense athletic training. Uh, But in verse 7 is applied to godliness, not the Olympics or whatever. A big theme. Godliness is a big theme in 1 Timothy. So what is godliness? Well, I like uh, how late Anglican Archbishop R.C. Trench defined godliness. That mingled fear and love which together constitute the piety of man toward God. Fear, love, and piety driving obedience to God. Uh, During peak training... Uh, sessions, phases, Olympic swimmer Michael Phelps is just an unbelievable athlete, swam nearly 50 miles per week. He trained twice a day for about five or six hours a day, six days a week. He needed, get this, 12,000 calories a day to sustain the rigorous training that he went through. And that's intense. But you know, when the race day came, Michael Phelps was ready. 23 gold, three silver, two bronze. He's a beast. That's amazing. Training for godliness is intense. There is no gain in godliness without considerable pain. You are ready for the gain of godliness when you are ready to exert considerable spiritual effort, exertion, work, Labor. Now, this may sound humanistic. Hey, don't go there, Pastor. What do you mean? It's all God's grace. So it's almost like it sounds like just grit your teeth and do it yourself. You have to really get after this, but that's not where Paul is going. You have to take Paul's theology from other places, many, many other places, and put that into what he is saying here in this place. The grace of God that he supplies in the gospel is our fuel for the training. If you don't get that right, you've you've lost the entire point. The gospel is the fuel. And I really like how Pastor Kevin DeYoung put it, which is in my point title here, spirit-powered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. We make no effort apart from Christ. But we are in Christ to make grueling effort. 2 Peter 1.5 says, For this very reason, make every effort. Work hard. And in verse 6, Peter connects godliness to that effort. Hebrews 12.14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which no one will see the Lord. Strive, pursue holiness with incredible and intense effort. 
Now, on our own, we have no strength, no speed, no stamina to pursue, let alone catch, godliness. There is nothing inherent to our nature which compels us to strain after godliness, nor are our efforts sufficient. They're not. But here is the promise of the gospel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.10, listen closely, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Listen carefully now. You have to listen carefully. This is important. Christ had already made Paul and Timothy positionally godly. The righteousness of Christ belonged to them by faith and God counted them as godly, as holy, as righteous, as righteous as they will ever be. Yet the grace of God supplied them in the gospel was more and more conforming them to who they truly are in Christ. The same is true for you. You can work your tail off for godliness precisely because the grace of God is at work in you, compelling you to be who you truly are in Christ. More and more. He's made you that, and now he's working in you to conform you to what he's already made you. This is very, very important. That's why we can work our tail off. Any spiritual laziness that you or I feel can be overcome by God's quickening grace. You should not be in despair mode here. Whatever you're like, I just can't do it. I just have no energy to battle that. It's the grace of God that will awaken you and quicken you unto that end. Here's another great encouragement for you, Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Get that. Get that in here. The God who brought Jesus back from death is the God who equips you with good things to do his will and works in you that which pleases him. And it's through this glorious and mysterious union with Christ that it happens. You cut off from Jesus, not happening. He is the only way for this to happen. And when he is, when you are united to him, it happens. He works. This is amazing. Paul said in Philippians 2.13 that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When you hear Paul tell Timothy, rather train yourself for godliness, you must hear in that by the grace that God supplies you in the gospel. Read about Jesus in the wilderness getting tempted by Satan. By the Spirit's power, Jesus exerted arduous effort to train himself for godliness, and he got his gain. Once again, Jesus pumps us up, so to speak, by putting the Spirit in us to work through the Word. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, answer 89, says this, 
the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual or effective means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith to salvation. Building them up. Building them up. God is building you up right now. Building your faith. Strengthening your faith to endure. The sixth life principle is train yourself, Jerusalem church, for godliness with spirit-empowered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. Seven, trust in the earthly, eternal, and extraordinary value of godliness. He's saying train yourself for godliness, Timothy. Why? Verses eight and nine. For or because... While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Yes, physical exercise is of some value right now. It is of some importance right now in this life to a certain extent. Godliness, on the other hand, is not only valuable in this life, it is valuable forever. It is valuable in the next life, in the life to come. Godliness comes with great promises for you now, and godliness comes with great promises for you then, after you die. When you're devoted by God's grace to fearing God, loving God, worshiping God, with your whole heart in this life, when you are training by the Spirit to that end, God communes with you along the way in this life. He walks with you in relationship. He is with you. Physical exercise cannot give you the presence of God. In this life, right now, by pursuing godliness with the strength that Christ provides you, you're able to enjoy. Think about this. You're able to enjoy true love, true joy, true peace, true patience, true kindness, true goodness, true faithfulness, true gentleness, and true self-control. Whether your circumstances are good or bad, those things are for you. God gives you to them through Christ. You could be in the worst possible situation. You could see no hope anywhere. You've got nothing, nowhere to go, nowhere to turn. And godliness, godliness will assure you of the presence and promises of God. Physical exercise can't give you that. Going to the gym an extra 10 times a week can't give you that. See, physical exercise can't satisfy your soul. Countless people, they leave the gym with beautiful, fine-tuned bodies and a despairing soul. How sad. How sad. But godliness, oh, my friends, godliness, in it are the promises of God for you in full. The greatest gain of godliness is seeing God and enjoying his presence forever. All of the pleasures of heaven, all of the things that are coming, find their goodness in one primary eternal pleasure, the presence of God with you forever. 
When, when deep down you trust, no, this is of earth. Godliness is of earthly value to me. Godliness is of eternal value to me. Godliness is of extraordinary value. Then guess what you'll do? You'll train. You'll train for it with all your might because you wholeheartedly believe, not just here, but in here, in the deepest part of who you are, you believe in the value of godliness. And that will, that will push you to gain it at whatever cost, whatever you've got to do, because you want it so badly. Dr. Philip Ryken talks about the value of godliness in this life and in the next, and he connects, which I think is very, very helpful, sanctification with glorification. Now, if you're not a theological person and those don't mean anything, I think the quote will clarify for you what he means, and I think you'll be able to benefit from this. Just listen very carefully to what Riken said. To put this in doctrinal terms, there is a connection between sanctification in this life and glorification in the life to come. Sanctification is the work that the Holy Spirit does in this life to make the believer godly. Glorification is the work that the Holy Spirit will do in the next life to make the believer gloriously godly. These two works of the Holy Spirit, sanctification and glorification, cannot be separated. The godliness begun in this life will be perfected in the next. Sanctification is the root of glorification. Glorification is the fruit of sanctification. And this is why godliness holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Do you understand what Riken is saying? The Holy Spirit is working in you in this life to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. It's a process. Little by little, you become more like Jesus. But the day is coming, brothers and sisters, dear saints, the day is coming when your godliness will be perfected. You will be like Jesus. No more sin Jesus is removing from you little by little, putting to death that sinful nature, those sins. And someday he's going to remove that entirely and conform you to his breathtaking beauty and holiness and godliness. And you will be glorified in him, it will be yours. That is glorious. So trust in the preeminent value of godliness now and forever. And when you do, you will naturally be training yourself for godliness. Now, this week I've been meditating on Hebrews uh, 12, 1 and 2. And verse 2 says that because of the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. <laughs> Let that sink in despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew the value of godliness. Oh, yes, he did. He knew the promises of God. So for the joy of pleasing his Father, doing everything for the glory of his Father, and being the Savior, the glorious Savior of all of God's people, Jesus gave himself up to crucifixion to receive his due glorification as the Lord as the eternal Son of God, risen from the dead forever to hold supremacy in all things. 
That is his rightful glorification. Jesus was the happiest person ever. And he took advantage of the gains of godliness when he lived on planet earth and as he goes on forever. He is living on in eternal joy and glory precisely because he hustled. Because he sweated. Because he labored for godliness. He worked. He exerted himself by the Spirit's power. He got his reward. You will have yours. Do you trust in the value of godliness enough to walk by the Spirit to obtain your reward? I think a lot of the problem is inside of us, if if you identify with this, is we don't believe in the value of godliness. We find something else, eh, I think I'll waste my time with that. If we believed that godliness just had eternal value, how much more would we train? Don't you think? So the seventh life principle is this. Trust in the earthly, eternal, and extraordinary value of godliness. The next point explains why. Number eight, toil and strive for godliness because your hope is set on the living God. Now, we'll get into this more next week, but here's a bit now. Verse 10 says, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. What are Paul and Timothy toiling and striving for? Well, the word for links us back to the preceding verses, so I take Paul to mean that they are toiling and striving for godliness, the benefit of which they want to get. They want the value of it. Now, gospel ministry was very hard for Timothy, was very hard for Paul. Read about their lives. And, And it's very hard for pastors today to do faithful, godly ministry. Very hard. How were they able to toil and strive? Look again, because we have our hope set on the living God. That's where the hope is. That's where the power comes from. Paul and Timothy were confident in God. This is not, oh, I really hope. I mean, maybe, so I hope. It's not that. It's confidence. This is going to happen. Therefore, I hope in the living God. The living God was their gain. The living God was their expectation. The living God was their hope. Hope in God stimulates arduous effort toward godliness. In 1 Colossians 1.27, Jesus is referred to very helpfully as the hope of glory. Hope is certain confidence. Christ is the guarantee of eternal glory with God. Paul and Timothy's hope in God was made sure in Christ. When you are confident and certain in your future and final glorification with Christ, you will want to toil and strive for godliness because your hope will be set on the living God. Now, the eighth principle is this, toil and strive for godliness because your hope is set on the living God. Last one, nine, be assured you have a Savior by trusting Christ. Now, we're going to unpack this controversial phrase in verse 10 next week. And I just want to say this now, too. Next week might be a good week for you to bring some friends. If you have a friend that you want to hear the gospel, I believe in in putting in particularly gospel-centered, like unpacking what God does through Christ for us in simple ways and, and scatter that throughout. So I'm going to weave that in with understanding what this tricky phrase of verse 10 is next week. So you might want to invite some people who need to hear the gospel, and well, we all need to hear the gospel, so why don't you start by showing up first, and then I hope to be here too. Uh, if not, one of you will have to fill in, but 
Here we go. So we'll get to this more, but here's what I want to say now. As you continue to trust Christ and walk with Christ, God is your Savior. God is your Savior. And He really is. He really is. Believe that. He's he's your Savior. Having God as your Savior is indivisible from belief. You have no Savior without belief. You have to trust Christ, then God is your Savior. But as you live out real faith in union with Christ, as real godliness is produced in your life, you can be 100% assured that God is your Savior. He has rescued you, he has redeemed you, he has received you, and your ongoing belief and union with Christ and godliness give you the assurance that your heart craves, that you are secure in the hands of a sovereign and a loving Father who has reached out and saved you. So there they are, nine life principles that will make a huge difference in your life If you lose your focus on these principles, you're going to lose more than your shirt. Okay? Focus in, folks. Fill in the blank here as we we bring this to a close. More than anything else, I want to be. Okay? What do you want to be? More than anything else, what do you want to be? If what you want to be most is a good servant of Christ Jesus, and I hope that's what is deep within your heart, being a servant of Christ Jesus, then Paul's words to Pastor Timothy give you some incredible encouragement this morning and principles to live by, practical things to live by. And if you live by these principles, you'll be what God has saved you to be, a person of the word and godliness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your rich grace to us in Jesus Christ, and I pray that we can be men and women and children of the word and godliness. God, we need the Holy Spirit. Without a vital union with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in us, we will not work for anything but ourselves to our own destruction. But when your grace works in us so kindly, sometimes slower than what we wish, but little by little, your grace at work, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. It's hard to see sometimes how far we've come. We forget what God has done in our life to bring us by certain things. We forget where we're headed, that someday we will be in perfect communion with you and we will be like Jesus. And so... I just pray that we get our sights set on that, the end, so that in the process, the painful process here on this earth of fighting and striving and sweating and hustling for godliness, that we'd have courage and strength and hope in what God is making us and transforming us to be. Thank you so much for your clear word, and I pray that we can apply it to our lives for your glory and our greatest joy and pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen.